Good morning. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 13? If you're familiar with the book Pilgrim's Progress, you would know a bit about the story of Christian. So he's this man who sets out on this journey of the Christian life, and right at the beginning of his journey, he falls into this slew of despond, and it's a place where anxiety and guilt and trouble collect and gather, and he falls into this pit, and he's stuck there, and he's got to wade through it. And as we think about the book of 2 Samuel, we've encountered a lot of great and glorious things. At the beginning of the book, we met Hannah, and she's delivered by God. It's glorious. There's other stories like David and Goliath. David goes out and he defeats Goliath and it's glorious. There's Jonathan and he goes out against the Philistines with just his armor bearer and it's glorious. But there's also some problems. And as we enter into this part of 2 Samuel, it's like we're entering into the slew of despond. And we're going to be in the slew for quite a few chapters. And so with that, let's turn our attention to 2 Samuel 13. Verses 1 through 39. So hear the word of God. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to her, I love Tamar, my brother, Absalom's sister. Jonadad said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill, and when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Then David sent her home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat, and Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hands. And Tamar took the cake she made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not let this outrageous, do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this, is, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. 
But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister, he is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all of these things, he was very angry, but Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us... Not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom had struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men. The king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead, for by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept watch with up when the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him in the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come out, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and also his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we know that you are good and that your word is good, but often you give us hard and difficult words like this word. And so we ask that you would fill us with wisdom and understanding and insight so that we would apply your good word to our hearts and our minds. And so we ask for wisdom and help this morning. Would you give it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll start with this. Fathers love their children, and in particular their sons, when they instruct them and they hold them to the standard of their teaching. 
The scriptures make this clear all over the place. Fathers are charged by God to instruct their children and in particular their sons. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 7 says this, You shall teach these words diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and, and when you rise. Proverbs 1, 8 through 15. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us and let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. So according to the scriptures, fathers are charged to instruct their sons. And correspondingly and consequently, fathers must also hold their children, and particularly their sons, to that standard of teaching. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. And so God has given fathers two hands, a left hand and a right hand. And we see as we read this, God in his grace gives gifts for both the left hand and the right hand of fathers. And so we look at the right hand of fathers, and in the right hand, God gives a gift, and it's a book. And the book is filled with laws and promises and warnings and wisdom, and this book is the way of life. So fathers are to open up the book and to understand the book and apply this book to their children in all circumstances of life, as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. And then in the left hand, God places a rod into the hand of fathers. And this, to be clear, isn't the rod of wrath or oppression. It's not something a tyrant takes up and uses to beat people down with. Rather, it is the rod of correction, and when used with a heart of mercy and compassion and love, its sharp and painful sting drives out folly that was previously bound up in the heart of a child, Proverbs 22:15. And then that rod not only, not only removes this folly from children, but it begins to fill that vacant heart with wisdom, Proverbs 29:15. So fathers who love their children make use both of these gifts. They, they instruct them with the book, and then they correct them with the rod. So that's the introduction. Now to 2 Samuel 13. 2 Samuel 13, we see in this text right away vile and outrageous sin. We see rape, we see incest. And the sin catches our eye. It's the big E on the eye chart. You can't miss it. And as we read the text, it makes us sick. It makes us sick, and it should make us sick. And it also makes us question, particularly this. Why would God put this sort of story with this sort of sin in Holy Scripture? Why would God do this? Why would God do this? And if you're listening to the introduction, you might have an idea of where I'm going to go with the answer for that. I think the answer, at least one answer to that question among many other answers, is fatherhood. So underneath the rape, underneath the incest, is the foundation of fatherhood. And as we take up this chapter, chapter 13, I want to alert you to two levels of fatherhood at work in this story. So first and most obviously, there is the fatherhood of David. 
So in this chapter, the the door of David's home is thrown open wide and the text ushers us into the house of David and scripture wants us to take a look around David's home and to consider what is going on in David's house. And the text of Scripture doesn't care about any of the incidentals of David's house. It doesn't tell us about the color of the wallpaper or the furnishing or the paintings or the the lamps. The text of Scripture is concerned about David's children and in particular, David's sons. The text wants us to look at the fruit of David's fathering. So the text invites us to ask, has David taken up the gifts of God, the book, the rod, and put them to good use in the lives of his children, and in particular, his sons. And then there's another level of fatherhood, the second level, and it's not as obvious as the first level. It's the fatherhood of God. David isn't the only father being examined in chapter 13. Though the Lord's name isn't mentioned, or none of the characters invoke his name in the chapter, the Lord is there in the midst of all of this. The Lord has bound himself to David and David's line in an eternal covenant, promising to be to David a a father. And so the text invites us to ask as we examine this passage, what kind of father is God? God gives these gifts to fathers. He gives a book and a rod. What is God going to do with those gifts? What is he going to do with the book and the rod? And so the plan this morning is to work through this chapter at both of these levels. We're going to first consider David's fathering, considering him, and then after that, we're going to move to our God's fathering of David. So level one, looking at David, the failed fatherhood of David. So looking at chapter 13, it begins with all of the necessary introductions. First of all, there is Absalom, and the text tells us that Absalom has a beautiful sister. Her name is Tamar. And then there is Amnon, and we have to remember, piecing together other points of the story, that Amnon is David's oldest son. He's next in line to the throne after David. And then we get this piece of information in verse 1. Amnon loved her. Amnon loved Tamar. Now, this was no schoolyard infatuation. It was obsessive, it was consuming, and most of all, it was forbidden. Verse 2, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. And so what's going on here? Well, lust is raging in Amnon's soul. It's battering him again and again. We can think of waves against the shore, just beating him down. Day after day, Amnon has unfilled desires, and they're just torturing him. And the result of all of this, the battering and the torture, is that Amnon looks like a man who has been battered and tortured so much so that everybody can see it. So Jonadab comes in verse 4 and says this, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And we just need to pause right here and think. This is the point where a good father shows up and begins to work for the sake of his son. A good father is paying attention to his son, and he notices his son's demeanor and begins to investigate. He should say, David should say, Oh, son, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? But where's David? He's not here 
He's not here at this pivotal point in his son's story. He doesn't ask the question in verse 4. And as we look down into the text into verse 5, when Amnon gets instruction from Jonadab, David isn't there as well. Instead, the voice of Jonadab, the nephew of David, dominates the text and consequently dominates the heart and the mind of Amnon. And we have to say this isn't good. Look at verse 3. We get this description of Jonadab. It says, And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And that's a telling description, isn't it? It reminds us a bit of Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So just think about this for a moment. David didn't investigate the heart of Amnon. But a serpent did. David didn't instruct his son, but a serpent did. David wasn't there for his son, but in his absence, a serpent was. And the text is instructing us, fathers. And so fellow fathers, heed a warning. Your children are going to be instructed. That's a guarantee. The question is this. Who is going to do the instructing of your children? Will it be a serpent, a serpent-like figure like Jonadab, Or it will be you speaking the word of God into the ears of your children. Not only is there warning here, but there is encouragement. And here the encouragement, fathers, fill your home with your voice. Fill your home, better yet, fill the ears of your your children with your words and your counsel and your advice, your teaching, your admonishment, your, your affirmation. Speak words of life and speak them again and again and again in your home so that your children might hear the word of God and that they might live. Don't do what David did. He said, do what Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 7 tells you to do. There's a reason for that command. So David is absent. And because David is absent, Jonadab keeps speaking. So Jonadab gives Amnon instructions, verse 5. Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. And as we look at the rest of the story, sadly, Jonadab's words are followed to the T, exactly. It's amazing how this story is, is told. Jonadab's words shape the story. Everyone, everything conforms to the serpent-like speech. And so we see it in verse 6. Amnon pretends to be ill, which then brings David calling, and Amnon makes his request, send my sister to me. David obliges in verse 7. Then in verses 8, 9, and 10, and 11, there is Tamar in the text, and what is she doing? She is dutifully following the words of this serpent-like figure, Jonadab, attempting to prepare food to feed her brother. And so the instructions of Jonadab are being followed, and then we find the fruit of these instructions in verses 11 through 14, and it's terrible. The text says, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where can I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she... He violated her and lay with her. We read those words and instinctually we want to look away. In fact, 
We want to look away from all of chapter 13. But there's something going on here we need to take notice of. David's downfall began with what? It began with lust. He saw Bathsheba, that she was very beautiful. And what does Amnon do? He follows his father. He is consumed with lust for Tamar. David's trouble began on a couch. He was was resting on a couch when he should have been busy and active. And what does Amnon do? He follows his father. He pretends to be ill on what? On a couch. David's sin was sexual in nature. And what does Amnon do? He follows his father. His sin, his fall is sexual in nature. David used his power to take Bathsheba. Who could refuse King David? Who could say no? And Amnon follows his father. He uses his brute strength to overpower his sister. What do we see here? David charted a path of sin And Amnon followed exactly in the footsteps of his father. And as we look at Amnon, as we look at what we did, and if we could think of him as a portrait, we could see the resemblance of David and all that Amnon is doing. We look at Amnon, we look at chapter 13, and we say, I think I can see David there. And we shouldn't be surprised by any of this. Sons naturally imitate their fathers. That's the way God made this world. Sons follow in the footsteps of their dads for good or for bad. And fathers, by their conduct, by their lifestyle, dig in deep ruts. Do you think of a path through the woods? A father walks this path again and again and again with his lifestyle, with his conduct, with his speech, and he's digging in these deep paths in the woods. And what does the son do? Most naturally, the son just follows in those ruts dug deep by his father, rarely, if ever, departing from them. And again, the text of Scripture is instructing us. And so, fathers, I ask you, what sort of ruts are you digging for your children? And if you've got a boy, especially for your sons, what sort of patterns, what sort of behaviors are they getting used to? What do they think is normal? What do they think is right? What do they think is good by what you do and what you model before them? We see Amnon, he, he was shaped by his father and he followed in his father's footsteps. What's going to happen to your children by what you do, how you live? The story goes on. So Amnon has his sinful way with his sister. And after he has his sinful way with his sister, this great reversal takes place. We start to understand something about Amnon. He is a man completely controlled by his lower functioning emotions. He's driven by lust, so he rapes. And now driven by anger and rage, he does what? He sends his sister away in shame. And it appears through all of this, this whole story, that Amnon does not have a plan or a strategy. He's not thinking down the road. He's just thinking in the immediate This becomes painfully clear as the story unfolds. So he sends Tamar out of the house, and Tamar leaves. She she tears her clothes, she puts ashes upon her head, and she starts to lament as she goes, crying out. And everybody would have known. I mean, just think about the setting. Here is this woman coming out of this house, her her, her, her clothes torn, ashes on her head. She's weeping and crying out. Everyone would have known something terrible happened in Amnon's house. This was not a secret. And we should think of this whole scene like a signal flare shot into the sky in a dark night. What is Tamar doing? She is calling out for help. She's calling for justice. She's calling for protection. She's calling for some sort of response, any sort of response. 
But there isn't one, at least from David. I think the worst words in this whole story are found in verse 21. When King David heard of these things, he was very angry. As we think about verse 21, anger was warranted. Something outrageously sinful took place. Surely anger was appropriate. His daughter was degraded and violated. Surely anger was righteous. His son, his firstborn son, had made a fool of himself. But what makes these words even worse is that this is all that David has done. He only gets angry. Notice what David doesn't do. He, he doesn't do righteousness. He doesn't perform justice. He doesn't pick up the rod and bring it to bear upon his son. David does nothing. He only gets angry. And we see something here. We look at the left hand of David, and what does God put in the left hand of fathers? He puts a rod in the left hand of a father. And we see that David's rod is impotent. It is weak and ineffective. And there is a reason for the weakness of David's rod. David wasn't willing to confront the sexual sin of Amnon. Why? Because he had fallen and was weakened in the very same area of life. How could he call out Amnon when he had done something of the same sort as the king of Israel? How could he do righteousness when he himself had swerved from that very same standard in the very same exact spot? So David's fathering is ineffective. Why? Because of his sin. His rod is impotent and weak because he indulged in sin. Because David indulged in sin, he was not willing to reign in the indulgence of his own son. But this wasn't the only casualty of David's impotence. Because David was not willing to take action, he exposed another one of his sons, Absalom, to sin. And so David is content to sit by, angry, not doing justice, but Absalom wasn't. He hears of the injustice done to his sister, he sees it, and he tells his sister not to take it to heart, but the interesting thing is that Amnon takes the sin to his heart, and the sin burns within him. And though he plays it cool on the surface for years, two years, he waits his time to get his revenge, and at the sheep shearing festival, he arranges it so that his men can rise up and strike down Amnon. And so there's the failed fatherhood of David. And as we think about the failed fatherhood of David, as we think about the chapter 13, it's a bit like a staircase. And we're going down on the staircase, and the story keeps making us going down step after step after step, and it's a staircase that leads directly into the pit of hell. As we follow the story, one bad thing happens after another bad thing, after another bad thing, after another bad thing, and there's no let up or reprieve. It just keeps getting worse. Just consider what we're left with at the end of chapter 13. Behold the fruit of, of David's fathering. Tamar is left desolate. She has nowhere to carry her shame. A woman ravaged by her brother. Why? Because of David. Amnon has made himself an outrageous fool. He has acted worse than a, a godless Canaanite. Even the Canaanites don't act like this. And we find him slain. And then we see Absalom. And Absalom has blood on his hands. And now he is hopelessly estranged from his father, living outside the kingdom of Israel. And David's house, it's full of weeping. It's like a staircase, and the story just keeps pushing us down a step, down a step, down a step, and it's like we're going right down into the pit of hell. 
And it's a tough passage to deal with. Chapter 13, this is the way Scripture works. It refuses to Photoshop David or to spruce up his fathering or give us some, some positive of it. No, it's right there in front of us. But we need to move to the second level now, the level of God's fatherhood. And we ask at this point, because it seems like we're going down into hell as we read this story, we have to ask, is there anything else to say about this story? Is there, way in, is there any way up and out of this pit that we have descended into? Is there another staircase of hope somewhere here? And we don't see it on the surface of the text, but there is hope. In fact, I want to say that more strongly. There is grace and mercy operating in this passage, and it needs to be pointed out because we don't see it with our natural eye. Our eyes untrained can't see it in the midst of this hellscape. But if we let our eyes be trained by Scripture, we begin to see that God is at work bringing good out of this evil. So what I want to do is I want to string together three passages from First and Second Samuel, and they'll begin to, to shape and train our eyes to see the work of God here. First passage is First Samuel chapter two, verses six and seven. And so if you remember this, this is Hannah singing to the Lord after her deliverance from the Lord, and she says this: "The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and exalts." What is Hannah doing? Well, she is reaching to the extremities of our humanity. She grabs hold of those unsavory realities that we don't like to think about or talk about. Death, Sheol, poverty, abasement. And then she also talks about the good things, the good things we love to think about and meditate on. Prosperity, life, exaltation. And what she does in her song is she boldly tells us this. Yahweh does that. Yahweh does that, and she sings the truth into our hearts and our minds. She says this, Yahweh kills. Yahweh brings down to Sheol. Yahweh makes poor. Yahweh brings low. Yahweh brings to life. Yahweh raises up. Yahweh makes rich. Yahweh exalts. Even more, as she's reaching to these extremes of our humanity, she's telling us that Yahweh does everything in between. Everything in between, Yahweh does. He is the sovereign God who rules meticulously over all his creation. He is the master of all. And this has impact on our story, doesn't it? And we have to affirm this and know this as Christians. All that happens in chapter 13 happens inside the scope and reign of Yahweh, the sovereign God of Israel. Though God isn't mentioned here, though no one calls on his name, we can be sure that Yahweh is in control if we believe Hannah. He's in control. He's reigning meticulously over all of these events. Second passage, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. In this passage, David is receiving promise, the promise from the Lord. The Lord says this to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Just think about those verses. Like keywords start just popping out. Father. 
The sovereign king, this this Lord who reigns meticulously over all things, pledges himself to Father David and his line. In other words, son. David and his house now belong to Yahweh in this unique set-apart relationship. David is now called the son of God, and his son will have the, the privilege to bear that title as well. In other words, steadfast love. The Lord promises to never stop loving David. He's not going to stop. He's not going to stop loving David's house or, or David's son. And then the last word, discipline. The Lord promises. He promises to pick up the rod of correction and use it on his son when he sins. He will hold him to the standard of instruction. Third passage, 2 Samuel 12, 10 and 11. So this is taking place after David's sin with Bathsheba. Nathan has come to confront David, and now Nathan is speaking about the Lord's correction, what the Lord is going to do to his son. Nathan says, The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So what we ought to do is we ought to take these three passages and start putting them together. When we put them together, we get this vantage point to understand chapter 13 from the Lord's perspective. Now, this vantage point doesn't soften the blow of chapter 13. It doesn't make it any easier to read, but the vantage point does give us hope. And so here's the good news coming from chapter 13. It's this. Our God is not an absentee father. Nor is he an impotent father. He instructs his children, and he not only instructs his children, but he holds them to the standard of his instruction. Just reread the story like this. The Lord has instructed David. He taught him the way of life. Yahweh is a father who has used his right hand in the book therein. David was to be a man above all, the man of the word of the Lord, a man of Torah, meditating on the law of God day and night. David was to copy out Torah for himself. He used to be a man instructed by the Lord. But what does David do? He doesn't keep the law of God. He breaks it grievously so. And so what does the Lord do? Well, he doesn't sit by and watch his son while his son travels on the path of destruction and death. No, this God, this father intervenes. And through the acts of sinful men, through Amnon, through Absalom, the Lord is doing what? He's extending his rod and correcting his son and turning his son from sin. And so from this vantage point, we get to see what the Lord is doing. And though our minds can't wrap around the whole of what God is doing, we can see that. We can see that, that Yahweh is the father of David, and now he is using this wickedness and evil to correct and train his son for righteousness. From this vantage point, I want to just speak to our souls a bit in a few different ways. There's there's three things that I think come out from this story that can help us. First is this, God is our father, He is not a magical vending machine of forgiveness. You see it in the story. It's one thing to be forgiven by God, but it's altogether a different thing to be a son and to be trained by God not to sin. And we see it in the story. God is not content to just forgive David and wipe his slate clean and just let David go on with his life. No, he, God, is David's father. And what does God want? He wants David to become a different sort of man, a man who hates sin from his inner being. 
He wants David to, to grow up. And so what is he doing? He's employing all of these events, all of these events to mature his son, to correct him and to discipline him. And here's the truth. This is what God does for all of his true children. If you are a true child of God, you can be sure of this. God will discipline you. In fact, that's one of the ways we can tell we're one of the true children of God. We are disciplined by him. He corrects, he disciplines, he trains his children. Our God wants us, his children, not just to be forgiven people, but to be a mature people, fully grown, full-grown men and women in faith. He wants us to grow up. And so we can know this. Our God is in the business of training children, using in his right hand the book, but also using the rod of correction. We see him using it in this chapter on David, and we can be sure that he is using it on us. So God is our Father, not a magical vending machine of forgiveness. Second, God is our Father, not our adversary or our enemy. God is our Father, not our adversary or our enemy. And this has to be stressed as we interpret 2 Samuel chapter 13. All that is happening to David is discipline, not wrath. And that's important to pay attention to. All of this discipline is love from the hand of Yahweh. There is no wrath mingled in with the Lord's dealings with David. None. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. What does Nathan say to David? You're forgiven. What does that mean? It means the Lord is not holding David's sin against him. He is not going to bring down wrath on David's head for what he deserved. There is no wrath in 2 Samuel chapter 13 against David. It is all discipline from a heart of compassion, love, and mercy. And brothers and sisters, you need to hear this and believe this. God disciplines his children not out of wrath, not because he hates us, He never disciplines his children out of those realities. God isn't the sort of father who gets exasperated with his children. You know the scene. The father is pushed by one of his children again and again and again. The the child is pushing on his father, and, and the father is trying to deal with it. He's patient for a bit, for a moment, but finally the child gets under his skin. He's exasperated. His, his patience is gone. He explodes in wrath and fury. He, he attacks his child with his words. But hear this. Our God always disciplines his blood-bought children from a heart of compassion, mercy, and love. God never moves towards his children in wrath, but only in love. And it's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's wrath was spent on a son, and it was Jesus, and it's not you. And so what comes your way, it's only love. And even when the rod stings, it's only love and compassion and mercy. God tells us in his word, he wants us to know this and to live by this. Proverbs 3.12, the Lord reproves him whom he loves. The Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The Lord only disciplines out of love, only out of love. And so God is our father, not our adversary or our enemy. Third and last God is our father, not a soft couch cushion. God is our father, not a soft couch cushion. We see David in this story. He is a weak father. We see him time and time again in this chapter, refusing to take the reins of his family. In fact, we see him in chapter 13 constantly being manipulated. 
What happens? Jonadab gives this instruction, and David is manipulated. David serves his daughter Tamar up on a platter to his wicked son Amnon. And it happens again in the story. Absalom comes to David and implies David, pushes on David again and again. And what does David do? He's manipulated. And in, his, in this manipulation, he serves up Amnon. And in the process, destroys Absalom with this blood guilt. Just look at David. Because of his weakness, what happened to his family? Only trouble. Trouble. Weak fathers create trouble for their families. And David was a weak father. But hear the good news. Our God is not a weak father. He is not gullible or impotent. His resolve never weakens. His will is never thwarted. His wisdom never gets confused. He cannot be manipulated by anyone or anything. And the glory of the gospel is that we, by, the, by faith in the blood of Jesus, have become children of God Almighty himself. And because God is our Father, we will not become desolate. We will not be destroyed. Our family will not come to ruins because our God is reigning over us in love. The Almighty God is our Father. And so we can even rejoice in light of 2 Samuel chapter 13, knowing this. Oh, we see David and his fatherhood is weak and it brings all of this trouble. But I know this, in the gospel, I have God Almighty as my Father. And my life will never come to that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice in your fatherhood. We are so glad that you have brought us into your family by the blood of your Son. We are so glad that you are ruling and you are reigning over our lives and that you have good in your heart for us. And so we ask now, would you give us faith? Would you give us faith in the midst of discipline? Would you give us faith in the midst of trials and tribulation? Would you give us faith to trust that you are doing good to us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.